Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shorewords, and each episode I'll be talking with the authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about their tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. Today is my great, great pleasure to be talking with her deepness, Sylvia Earle, and the subsea concierge, Liz Taylor. I'll let them introduce themselves soon and explain their nicknames. But first, we'll take a moment to get a word from the sponsors, the great ASPN supporters. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So Sylvia and Liz, I've got a list of your books. And initially I thought I would start out by reading that list off, but you don't want to hear me talking for five minutes. I just thought it would be nice <laughs> if you could introduce yourselves to the um, to the listeners of this podcast. I'm sure they know both of you by reputation, if not personally, and explain how you got involved with the ocean um, and how you got your nicknames. That's a tall order, but anyway... <laughs> Sylvia Earl here. Fell in love with the ocean as a little kid and haven't stopped. First got knocked over by a wave when I was about three years old. But it's life in the ocean that held my attention right up to the present time. I became a biologist. (laughs) That was natural. And have really had the opportunity to experience, um, added all up probably several years at sea and thousands of hours under the sea, living in underwater laboratories 10 times, using, wow. losing, using little submarines, more than 30 different variations on the theme, and working with Liz and her partner, Ian Griffith in deep ocean exploration and research, the company that I started, but they have taken it over and is theirs to run with and develop technologies for access to the sea, which Liz will explain a bit more about. So I guess the name, her deepness is simply because I like to go deep (laughs) and stay long and onward and downward, more to come. But the books, I just want to say one, two things, three things. One, kids' book with National Geographic just came out. I finished it in 2019, but it was released last year in 2020. That was last year, right? It was. Yes. And during 2020, hunkered down and wrote with lots of help from a lot of people, Uh, the latest big ocean book with National Geographic called Ocean, a a Global Odyssey. It's 500 plus pages, which includes some maps and things that make it a little bit atlasy, but mostly it's the story of the ocean based on not just the the year of anthropause, but like all my life (laughs) has been kind of devoted into trying to size up what the ocean nature of the ocean, nature of life in the sea, how we are affecting the ocean in the Anthropocene and how the ocean affects us all day, every day. And the final one is a a reissue of a book that I wrote, was published in 1995 called Sea Change. Uh, Texas A&M University did a reissue a new edition of Sea Change, and I wrote a new forward for it. So it just came out in 2021. So 
haven't just been lounging about eating bonbons. We've been making <laughs> good use of the time. I don't think anyone would imagine you lounging about eating bonbons, unless it was down in the bottom of the ocean, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great idea. But now over to Liz. <laughs> so, yeah, so Subsea Concierge is really kind of came about because of the various things that people have asked me to help them with to solve underwater problems or to get some impossible shipment uh, to some impossible place and with a no time to spare, you know, ship tied up and waiting for the item to get there and having to figure out how to get anything from an O-ring to a submersible from, you know, anywhere in the world it needs to be. And at DOER, we, we really do focus on underwater problems and coming up with ways to solve them. So we deal with remotely operated vehicles, AUVs, human-occupied vehicles, any manner of tools that are required for doing uh, scientific sampling and analysis, um, systems integrations, equipment for harsh environments, infrastructure, you know, levees, dams, tunnels, <laughs> any of these kinds of things, any kind of underwater issue, but then really tying it back to, um, to where it all starts on land and to uh, really help people make those connections between the infrastructure under their house and their cities and realizing that it all leads to the ocean and we're all dependent on that ocean to uh, keep us all alive. Uh, so our big crazy thing that we did in the uh, during the pandemic was to actually open a public facing store. So we now have the Deep Ocean Explore store, which was really driven by the number of people that just kind of approached us and we're trying to find out how they too could become more connected to the ocean and starting right here in the Bay Area. And and it's really um, kind of taken off. So <laughs> it's great to have people just come in and, and be cu being curious and, and staying curious even as as we sort of uh, get, get back to work in a way and, and people are having to, to return to offices, they're still taking time to work hard to reconnect to the natural world, which is uh, quite gratifying. And your, your shop is wonderful. I've been there. I think I've been in all three of your, your major workspaces mm -hmm. um, over time. And it was with one of your early submersibles that I got to meet you both. So exactly, this is a, a wonderful time to chat with old friends. I wish we were in the same space together, but we're still dealing with some of the pandemic issues. But uh, um, Sylvia, I, I'm glad you mentioned Sea Change and then your most recent book. Um, can't wait to see it and, and hope it is out soon. I guess it's going to be November sometime that it comes out. That's right. Over the time that you've had your books out in circulation, you've been doing all sorts of public presentations and discussions and films and video and um, sort of giving your message, your message of the importance of the ocean, the threats that we have presented to the ocean, um, the reason for concern, and then almost always those reasons for hope. But how have you seen changes in the reactions people have had to your message over time? Has it changed at all? Or is there always this earnestness that I sense now in, in the people that are talking about the oceans? The ocean is beginning to speak for itself. <laughs> We're seeing real problems ranging from the avalanche of plastic that we have put into the ocean that comes back to haunt us along the shore uh, in the knowledge that is now out there that big chunks of plastic, the discarded and lost fishing nets and gear are big problems. But when it breaks into, down to microplastics, now nanoplastics that are so tiny that they get lofted into the air into the water, and certainly in the ocean, they get incorporated. The small, medium, and large variations on the theme of trash that we put into the ocean, that it gets incorporated in the food chain, along with the various toxins that love to hug the small bits of plastic. So poor creatures get a concentrated dose of the, of the bad stuff we put in the ocean. But then when those who eat fish, I do not, but those who do get a get a real 
load of the things you don't want in you, especially the further up the food chain and the older the fish, the bigger the, the worse fish. worse it is. Absolutely, more toxic it is. Bioaccumulation is real. For sure. So how do I react? What have I witnessed? Well, <laughs> since I first splashed down in the ocean in 1953 with scuba, I have seen the greatest era of discovery. We've learned more about the ocean and why it matters to everyone everywhere all the time than during all preceding history. We've been on a fast track. It, it is partly because of the new technology. And of course, there are a lot more people. So there are more people who care about the ocean, or at least care about exploring the ocean. But it's mainly technology-driven, the ability to actually go and live underwater, to send robots, to go even to the deepest part of the ocean. Not possible when I was a kid. Now, actually, they're for the just starting this year, 2021, a milestone was crossed in that more people have now been to the deepest part of the ocean than have been on the moon. More than a dozen people have been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench and come back. So I'm, I think compared to concern about what we're putting into and taking out of the ocean, people thought, and maybe I bought into it too, because I didn't know any better that the ocean was so big, so fast, so resilient that nothing humans could do could possibly harm the ocean. And the questions that I sometimes dealt with as a young scientist. So if we lose all the whales, what difference would that make? I mean, that was a real question. So um, the ocean will go on, right? <laughs> or if we lose all the tuna fish, if we catch them all, life will go on. It won't make any difference. It just means we'll get fat right now eating tuna. <laughs> or somebody will get fat in a bank account way by taking tuna on a scale. So that now literally 90% of many of the big fish, bluefin tuna in the Pacific are down to 3% of what they were in the 1970s. Sharks overall have declined since 1980 by overall 90%. Some species like the oceanic white tip and mako sharks are a fraction of 1%. Really, we are so good at killing them, so good at marketing their fins, so good at eating them, so good at taking them just for the fun of it, that we're almost on the edge of taking them all. And that just is so, so crazy, so ethically, morally wrong. But more than that, it's not good for the ocean and therefore not good for us. And I think a lot of people are finally realizing that how long it takes for many of these fish to, um, well, how long lived they are and how long it takes them to become reproductively uh, mature. You know, you can have a a fish that's 30, 40, 100 years old uh, showing up in a, in a Whole Foods market somewhere, which is just abominable. Yeah. And, and you think about the food choices that we, that we have and the power that we have, there's, there really is uh, no excuse to, to carry on with this wholesale uh, trade in ocean wildlife when we, we really have before us so many other choices and it really does. It is something that's so impactful that people anywhere can do uh, is, is to really be mindful of those choices and to and to make better choices. In this country, in particular, yeah, you know, for have, sure. <laughs> have, how many people are trying to lose weight? For heaven's sakes, you look at the rest of the world; they're starving. But here, we're doing everything we can to, you know, shed some pounds because we have so much to eat, and we make bad choices. M many people do. It's not for lack of food in this country that we eat, that we eat, choose to eat ocean wildlife. That's true, very much so. And um, I would expect that a lot of what we eat is not the um, small amounts of good fish, good healthy fish for us, 
Leslie, think about it. We, even in my parents' time, wild birds were taken commercially to eat. I mean, by the truckload. Barrels of robins. <laughs> right, exactly. Four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie. My uncle was a was a actually a market hunter for muskrats in the New Jersey marshes and ducks and geese by the boatload to take to market to sell for money. Now, he did eat some of these creatures, but mostly it was it was a it's like you know, killing an elephant for its ivory. It was turning wildlife into money. They were regarded as free goods. Anybody could go and take them. You didn't have to pay for songbirds or ducks or the little furry things. You still don't. It, well, you can get a sort of a phony baloney license to kill a polar bear, <laughs> but or whatever. These the, the sport hunting that has a certain price tag associated with it. But I mean, fishermen have free goods out there. The, the grocery store is open. All you have to do is go get them. They're free. Anybody can take, nobody has to pay. You have to pay for the boat to get there. You have to pay for whatever it is that <laughs> you can use to catch them. But it's so seductive to think that that anybody can go and eat by killing wildlife, whether it's squirrels, and raccoons, or tuna. Although getting to tuna is really kind of a big deal because most of them are not living close to shore. You have to be able to get to where they are. Now people are getting to where they are with high-tech methods that really seriously got underway, I guess you could say in the 1960s, mostly really amping up seriously in the 70s, but with new lightweight materials, the synthetic materials that are made up, that make up long lines and nets. Plastics. <laughs> yeah, plastics and by whatever name, now are clogging the ocean and keep killing creatures long after the, the fishermen have gone away. I mean, the, the, the lost and discarded nets are killing literally every year on the order of 300,000 marine mammals, hundreds of thousands of seabirds, sea turtles, and, and of course lot, whales. And whales. Getting right. entangled. Yeah. yeah, whales and, and, and all manner of marine mammals. But the fish that are also taken and discarded, it it's just doesn't make any sense economically or ethically or or ecologically, it's crazy what we do to the ocean. And the idea of bycatch, well, those are wonderful creatures. They're just not what you were licensed to go out and get, so it's not... We have no accounting base. There's zero accounting base. There's no loss, no cost to you for dragging a shrimp net and catching 90% of what comes in gets tossed over the side and maybe 10%. If you've seen Forrest Gump, you'll know what <laughs> we're talking about. Ned comes in and dumps this, this cornucopia of life. Most of it gets shoveled over the side. A wash tub gets handpicked the, the, the shrimp that are retained. Everything else dies. I want to switch gears a little bit because um, I think we're going down a, a very depressing <laughs> <laughs> track and um, depressing, but still lots of reasons for hope that you know people can make such do such small things can make such a huge difference. Yeah, once you know, once you know, mm -hmm. and, and people are oblivious <laughs> to the real cost of their shrimp cocktail. I mean, the knowledge is there, but it is not in the minds and hearts of people, generally speaking. And the same individuals who don't know how old these creatures are, they equate fish with chicken or with with a burger, <laughs> a beefsteak, whatever. But all things considered, it's far more costly to you 
because it's costly to your life support system to be eating wild animals than to be eating farm creatures as, as expensive as they are. I mean, cows have a big footprint on the land, and so do the chickens. We just, you know, Leslie, I think what's exciting about being around right now in the 21st century is we're able to put things together, the cause and effect, to look at the at the patterns, to see the world as we've never been able to see it before, to connect the dots. People just never thought about how old is the fish that goes on your plate until now, because now we know. And now we can make the connection to climate because all living things, including the fish in the sea, and certainly the whales, they're carbon-based units, like trees. <laughs> they are holding carbon that starts with phytoplankton, goes through the long and twisted food chain to make a rockfish, to make a squid, to make a shrimp, to make a tuna, to make a whale. And when they stay in the ocean, the carbon stays in the ocean too. When they're taken out of the ocean, the carbon as carbon dioxide and methane get released into the atmosphere. Or if they're eaten by you or me or somebody, um, some of it gets retained as a part of us, but most of it gets burned as energy and is released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide or methane. So we're part of the problem. We're part of the climate problem when we consume fish. I mean, who knew? But connecting the dots, follow the carbon. Follow the carbon. Economists tend to follow the money, <laughs> but scientists are now looking at the, the climate crisis that we're facing and they say, well, what are we going to do about it? Let's capture the carbon. Let's try to sequester as much carbon as we can. Let's find some wonderful engineering solution. And meanwhile, we cut the trees, we catch the fish, and we destroy the natural carbon capturing systems that took, well, in the order of four and a half billion years to get to the position that we're in now, a happy, healthy, favorable climate for humans. And it's taken us about four and a half decades to significantly unravel it. But now we know, and we are armed with knowledge that that could not exist when I was a kid. But now we now we know. Kids of today are the luckiest kids ever, and so are the grown-ups, because of the knowledge that can save us if we just listen up. That's so true. Yeah. Do you want to talk about Mission Blue and your hope spots? If Liz will talk about the little submarines that are <laughs> being in the pipeline, but yes, of course, of course, yeah, both, yeah. So the you know the the hope spots are just such remarkable areas. You know, the San Francisco Bay is actually a, a recent hope spot, and it's one of these areas that I think was selected not because it's in really great pristine shape, but because it really needs a lot of help. And <laughs> it could go from where it is to get to yeah, better health to get to better health. And and the, the kind of the new feature that's coming along of being able to uh, have story maps in collaboration with with Esri, so that uh, at least we've been working with this at the Deep Ocean Explorer Store and engaging a lot of our uh, scuba divers and coastal explorers to go out and and really document what's going on right there in their backyard, and then being able to provide that information via these story maps to to start to document change over time, both good and bad. Great images, stories, data. And with Patty to take this globally. Yeah, there's a, we're working on them on an initiative right now around sharks and um, how we can help to better protect them and how divers can be part of that solution. And really, especially now during uh, Sharktober as it is. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Here we to, are. <laughs> to, to go out and, and really uh, help protect these species that are under such tremendous pressure. And and really looking at, you know, sharks are a great example of these, many of them being these kind of global 
travelers, the whale sharks, the oceanic white tips, great whites, great whites. They, you know, they have these very long migration routes and, and one of the great ways to observe animals at, at depths below diving is of course with the little submersibles and being able to go down and, and check them out directly. And, you know, even people that feel nervous around sharks, they can, they can be in a little <laughs> sub. So they're, you know, they're not going to get, you know, and nosed or the bumped. Shark, or, the sharks are safe. The sharks us. are safe from us. Exactly. <laughs> but it's a, but it's a great way to go down and, and understand like what is their depth range really. Um, but, but these little subs are, you know, kind of that gift of time to be able to explore the hope spots and, um, and other regions all around the world. And then to visit these swimways between the, the hope spots between marine protected areas that really need our protection. Um, connecting the, the dots. Connecting the yeah. dots. Yeah. I mean, it would be so, so impactful if we could somehow muster the support to just have unilateral protection for the high seas. Just leave that area alone. It's um, <laughs> our life support system. It's the blue heart, not just of the ocean, but of the planet. So, yeah, the idea... For hope spots precedes the time when I won the TED Prize, but the TED Prize in 2009 provided provided an opportunity to focus on igniting public support. They offered, gave me a chance to make a wish big enough to change the world. And the wish that I made seems so logical to inspire people through whatever means conversations such as this leslie <laughs> you know getting the word out through films through using the internet through through writing books through building little submersibles that can take people into the blue heart of the ocean but the end result of all this is to embrace the ocean the with with greater care and now there is widespread support for the idea of 30 percent of the ocean to be highly or fully protected within the next 10 years by 2030 and right it's 30 30 plan i've heard that 30 by 30 and at least half of the world 50 by 50 but really all of the ocean, all of nature, land and sea together to be regarded with appropriate respect. These natural systems, the diversity of life, this network of life, this fabric of life keeps us alive and we must return the favor. We have to undo as much as we can the harm imposed over really all, over all of our existence. We're just at the point. Uh, I think of it as the sweet spot in time, a term that engineers understand. It, it's that point that you haven't gotten there yet, and if you wait much longer, it'll be too late. It's the right moment, the right place, when everything is just right. So if we wait, another 10 or 50 or 100 years, we'll lose a chance that we have right now. And it would be great if we could go back 10 or 30 or 50 years, but we, we didn't know enough. Now we know. We're armed with that most critical power. It's the superpower of knowing what our predecessors, as smart as they were throughout all preceding time, did not have available to them what the kids of today start out with. You've got, you may not get it in school. You may have to go <laughs> on to an aquarium or you might have to go to a museum or some like in, in San Francisco, there are great institutions of learning like the hey, Exploratorium. <laughs> you can get a, things that you can see and learn there that you cannot usually in most cases, find in schools. Yeah, our, our school systems are geared to the ways of of learning that were okay fifty years ago, perhaps, but they're not okay right now. We need to 
incorporate with our letters, our numbers, the things that you you learn as a child. We need to understand that we're dependent on nature. We need to learn about where air comes from and what it's, it's a living system. We know we need to know our impact on the world and how we can really give back. The one thing I did learn, maybe somewhere like in the third or fourth grade, was something about the words that were used was the, were, were the balance of nature. I'm, I'm still not sure what that means, but <laughs> the idea was that in nature, things connect and there are predators and their prey, their plants and animals and rainfalls and water flows and somehow it all works in a, in a ongoing prosperous way, the balance of nature. But curiously, I don't recall that humans were part of that. That we were like witnessing, we we're, we're looking as spectators on the balance of nature. Now, we know that as preposterous as it seems in the greater scheme of things, we actually are changing the nature of nature, not the laws of nature. <laughs> Those are immutable. Those are just, that's just what is. <laughs> Water flows downhill most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Gravity exists most of the time. <laughs> but it, it's the... Understanding that we are not only a part of nature, but that we are a dominant factor in in the basic life support functions of the planet that relates not just to the fish in the sea and the elephants in Africa or the way water flows, but it, it affects us. We have the power to either restore health to the natural world to and, and therefore increase our chances of survival or we will just merrily go along our way doing what we've always done consuming nature as if it's endless and doesn't matter how many tuna we take how many trees we cut how much stuff we throw about <laughs> as if it goes away somewhere <laughs> but i think that view of earth from space really was a shocker there is no way. What's here is here. And we can transform the minerals from the earth into strange and wonderful things like cities, like bags, plastic bags or cups and things. We're really good at, at, at engineering a world that we can't live in if we keep doing what we're now doing. And the other part of that looking at Earth from space was the realization that, it, as many have said, it's a blue planet. And that's, that's what we are learning. But what, what sort of new information are we going to be getting from your um, book that will be coming out, The Global Odyssey, Ocean, The Global Odyssey? Well, I've done several books with National Geographic addressing the ocean overall. One was called Ocean um, National Geographic Atlas of the Ocean. That goes. That was one of the first ones. And then exploring the deep frontier. Exploring the deep frontier <laughs> was the very first one. That was in 1980. <clears throat> and one that I really love is is Wild Ocean because it looks at the marine sanctuaries in this country and anticipates the the importance of of protecting the ocean and the land, natural areas um, overall. And then the Atlas of the Ocean that was published the same, about the same time that I got the TED Prize, the book, the Ocean Atlas came out in, in 2009. It was actually um, dated 2008, but anyway. Big, it was the same time that the ocean and Google Earth launched. It was a very busy week. <laughs> it was. It really was. <laughs> Incredible. Some weeks are like that. Some days are like that. But the, this collision of the ocean and Google Earth 
Liz had a lot to do with that. National Geographic got involved. But to be able to explore from high-end space, you come down to, you know, with Google Earth, you can see national parks. You can see New York City. You can see your backyard and your neighbor's backyard. And But they're, they're, until that moment when, I guess, it was in 2006 that John Hankey, who's the one who brought the concept of Google Earth to Google <laughs> and developed it into this wonderful mechanism, be able to fly from high in the sky down to the land. They, they couldn't go in the ocean. The ocean was still missing. Um, but I think you accused him of creating Google Dirt. I think I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he could have been really upset, but he wasn't. He said, let's fix it. That's the what that's the answers we want. Yes. But you know, and then I think one of the things in the in the new book that you really touched on, which is important for everybody to really think about, is that you know even in the some of the deepest parts of the ocean, life is abundant. And one of the areas that's at highest risk right well, two areas at highest risk right now um, are in the deep sea. The the deep scattering layer is at increased risk of uh, systematic trawling just for biomass to turn these amazing migrations of uh, very small fish, just grinding them up fish in, and in, grinding them up into into <laughs> fish meal or or fish oils um, feed to salmon to feed to salmon farms mm. um, is one huge area that's talked about. And then and you know the uh, this whole issue that's going on with uh, the push to mine the deep sea and how stupid that is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> really blunt. Um, <laughs> it's just but, true. But, you know, we, we're, we're told that we, you know, we need to hurry up and drive electric cars. We need to hurry up and um, have the newest cell phones and things. But again, you know, consumer choices, try to choose things that are, you know, durable goods that can be fully recycled at life end. Um, we don't really need to be exploiting this incredibly delicate area. Uh, just f to extract metals. At first, we should mine the metals we already have in dump sites around the world. I mean, they're already concentrated beyond what they are in, in the deep sea. And some of that's already happening, but we could do a whole lot more. Um, but the, the point of this kind of rambling uh, exercise about your question about the <laughs> content of, of this this new book is at the, at the end of every previous book well when I start the writing of it or the gathering of information because new insights are happening so fast by the time the ink is dry I have said and I'll say it again it's time to start a new book because new information is coming so fast that there isn't time to incorporate it in the book that goes out the door because it's fixed. It's done. Thank, it's so great that we have the internet to keep us up to date with new discoveries that are happening literally not just every day, but sometimes every hour, new, new information that you, you want to stay current. And it's, it's hard to, to maintain that once you've sent the book off to the printer. I mean, it's done. You've drawn the line. Now you have to start the next version that will keep you up to date until you write the next book. <laughs> so it's not exactly out of date. It's as much up to date as, as I and my many colleagues who contributed to getting the the most up-to-date insight into what we know about the ocean, the technologies that are being used to explore and document the nature of the ocean. What do we know about life in the sea? One of the aspects I do really love about this new book, Leslie, is that there's a, like a double fold-out in the center of the book 
that really gives at least a snapshot of the range of life in the ocean, which means life on Earth. Only about half of the animal, the basic categories of animals, have made it into a terrestrial or freshwater environment. They're all in the ocean. More than 30 phyla, these major divisions of life, are in the sea. Only about 15 occur. All of the land put together, you can find sometimes in plankton, and certainly in this deep scattering layer that that this that Liz described that is lives at the edge of light from a hundred to a thousand meters, a migrating horde of diverse creatures that are groceries for the high seas animals like whales and tunas and turtles and swordfish and other migra migrating animals. They dive down into this deep scattering layer and dine on life that is there and it's part of the carbon cycle just the way that they mix the the water i mean right. they're so abundant and um and it's such it's the biggest animal migration on on the planet now that happens really every, every night. night yeah and and they come up from the deep they just their body movements just the sheer mass of them uh, actually mixes the layers of the ocean to help sequester um that marine snow down into the into the deeper parts of the sea and form those um, the carbon sink the carbon sink yeah they're literally a sink they it actively sinks. they're actively <laughs> sinking carbon for us um so i have a couple more questions for you and because this is a book about literature um part of what i noticed so much in looking at blue hope was the amazing quotes you have throughout the book as well as the amazing photographs so i'm wondering if you might mention a couple of the books that really have inspired you or that you're reading right now or whatever strikes your fancy of sort of that literature part of your um, quest out beyond your own books. It was William Beebe's book, Half Mile Down, that captured my imagination when I was, it was when I first moved to Florida from New Jersey. I think I was maybe... 12, 13, sitting on the floor of the little library in Dunedin, Florida, and discovering this amazing book that described how William Beebe and Otis Barton, the engineer and the scientist together, diving to the edge of light and into the darkness where you know, it's dark all of the time. Most of life on Earth lives in the dark all of the time and it's cold and the pressure gets more the deeper you go but it's filled with these magical amazing beautiful creatures i was hooked <laughs> i'm still hooked i still read william Beebe's lyrical way of describing his experiences as a scientist so of course when jacques cousteau's silent world came out that one got my attention too and that was in 1952 that I pounced on that book. But, you know, just going through The Lady with the Spear, Eugenie Clark, I figured here's a woman who has four kids, a happy husband, it seemed, <laughs> and that she was able somehow to be a really highly respected scientist. She traveled by herself in the 1940s, Japanese American going to Palau and other places in the South Pacific with funding from the American Museum of Natural History to go explore and study coral reef fishes of a particular sort that captured her imagination, the filefish and their puffer fish and their relatives. And here's this this petite woman, scientist, doing things that you would expect a guy to be doing, if at all, if at all, going out all by yourself, just <laughs> no special equipment other than a face mask and, and an attitude of, of, of confidence and, and, and mission. She curiosity. Had, and cur oh, absolutely. That's the driving force. 
And when I met Jeannie Clark in 1954, um, I was a student already committed to ocean stuff, but or it was somehow she made it okay to do things that guys were usually expected to do. And I think I had already determined that I was going to do this one way or the other, but she just made it okay. You, you didn't have to make apologies for doing something. She did it with such style and grace. And what? Other books? Well, of course, Silent World knocked me over, but even before Silent World, The Sea Around Us, published in 1951, before it was known that continents move around, before it was confirmed, there were some who suspected that the continents really are like big pieces of a puzzle that now are split apart, but once a time together, once upon a time, they were all joined together as one big landmass. And knowing on my watch that I've seen scientists discover the mechanism underlying this, and to realize that it was basically um, something that was there for us to see all along, but it took a lot of people but individuals who focused on the problems and came up with the explanation for how this how this happens and it's an ongoing process it also it also to me takes takes thinking about the ocean as a dynamic system because most of that spreading was going on in ocean systems so you don't see it so much until you see the results right so well, in, in the new book, I talk about heroes, actually visionaries, who over time have seen what others have not. And some of them are just newcomers to, you know, they're, they're young scientists who <laughs> nonetheless have seen things others have not and are running with their concepts. So there are probably, I don't know, a dozen, several dozen profiles of these these uh, extraordinary people <laughs> who are included in, in the book uh, and timelines of discovery as well as just information and sea stories, if you will. Um, so what am I reading now? One, one of the books is by Rita Colwell. She, if you don't know who Rita Colwell is, check her out. She's a microbiologist. She's the first woman to be the head of the National Science Foundation. A microbiologist, talk about being ahead of your time. She has pounced on the little guys that really rule the world as her focus of study over decades. Her new book is, is a lab of one's own. She talks about the journey as a woman scientist in, in a, a very contrary kind of atmosphere where women were not welcome and just described how she has toughed it out and has become a, a real leader in terms of, of understanding that, as I was told by James Miller, who was head of the Tech-Type program, when there were concerns about accepting women as aquanauts, he said, well, half the female, half the fish are female. <laughs> I guess you put up with a few women, but half of the population of the world, actually more women than, than men among humans. And to waste that talent, to suppress it, to deny equal access and equal compensation for doing at least equal work, I keep thinking of Ginger Rogers dancing backwards with Fred Astaire. She was wearing high heels and and following every move. But people remember Fred Astaire. But who was this Ginger Rogers person who was doing everything he was doing backwards in high heels? Let me tell you about Edie Witter, this new book she has <laughs> about the bioluminescence and her personal journey, including what what it is like as a woman scientist in in this moment over over time. 
All right. Over to you, Liz. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm, I guess I've been uh, kind of rereading some books lately. Uh, You know, particularly I've been interested in some of the ones that really help to, I don't know, kind of show that witness story in such an interesting way. Um, And looking at two years before the mast again. Um, And of course, Moby Dick. I've read that numerous times over and over. (laughs) (laughs) And it just never, you know, neither one gets old because it's, it's just so interesting to, with looking at what's going on in the world today, what's going on in the ocean and really going back and, and reading those accounts and those witness stories, what the California coast was like uh, back in the 1800s and how much it's fundamentally changed today uh, just from the, the, the terraforming that people have done right. and thinking about how, again, how to find that balance. Uh, and you know, in, in two years before the mast, Richard Henry Dana describes trees right down to the shore. And of course, San Francisco Bay was, was intact. We filled about a third of the bay yeah. since his time. And they already, though, the hills of, around San Francisco were being burned for, for, to turn the brush and the trees into grazing land for cows. And part of the mission of the vessel that Richard Henry Dana was on, he, he left from Boston to go all the way around the tip of South America to come up to San Francisco to collect the hides of, of the cows, cows to go <laughs> it's all, the, all the way back to make shoes in Boston. I and mean, those harrowing accounts from dragging these bundles of, of cow, cow hides are yeah. just like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, to, to go back into some of those those uh, you know those witness stories that literature that's so rich and and really looking at it with fresh eyes today. Yeah. Um, what were we thinking? And you know, in Mo- Moby Dick, the the guys falling into the the Heidelberg Tun, you know, falling into the head of the whale <laughs> and almost <laughs> drowning in the oil, you know, <laughs> and it's just they're just unbelievable stories. And and even you know, going back to some of even the more classics, you know, the the rhyme of the ancient mariner, you know, rereading yeah. that over and over, and and you know, thinking about albatross then, albatross today. You know, back back then they just had to contend with, you know, kind of crazy mariners from time to time. But today, you know, they might encounter a, a piece of plastic and accidentally feed it to their to their chick. And then right. thinking of fewer squid, fewer fish, and lots more plastic. Yeah, and then thinking about the amazing, you know, bird wisdom wisdom that for so many years has returned like clockwork to Midway Island to meet her mate and to hatch a chick, and how she survived. Uh, all these years, even when the, the tsunami hit, she just sort of rode it out and guarded her egg. <laughs> that one egg every other year. And yeah, so you know, I, can, I, I really kind of look at, at some of those um, pieces of literature and then um, try to tie, you know, again, connect the dots to, to things today that can really. Um, it, it puts help things us. in perspective. Yeah. If you don't. <laughs> As Zahi Hawass, one of my fellow explorers in residence at the National Geographic, has commented, if you do not know your past, you cannot know your future. <laughs> <laughs> and if you really want to dive deep, go, go, you know, reread some Virginia Woolf and, and all the water connections there. It really does remind us that water connects us all. And Kathy Sullivan's new book, she's a skywalking astronaut but she finally sat down and and took stock of her past as an astronaut marine geologist. She's a dive buddy who has really spent many hours exploring the ocean as well as exploring the skies above. And, you know, we talk about Mission Blue. There's now an organization called Mission Green. And it was started just recently, in the past year, by a good friend and an ally uh, who wrote a book called The Arbonaut. Mm -hmm. She climbs climbs trees using her natural 
um, primate abilities. And there are so many parallels about the new discoveries being made high in, in trees as well as deep in the sea. This is Meg Lohman, and she is known as Her Highness. I she's, am known as Her Deepness. <laughs> and she's going to be one of our, our guests on one of our dive-in episodes in yes. uh, December. Right. So we're going to talk about going up and going down and how it all comes together following the carbon cycle, climate change, climate protection, climate coping. But Leslie, you know the book I really want to read? What? The book Liz is going to write. <gasps> Perfect. <laughs> she is so good with words and so has many stories to tell. And so I'm waiting, Liz. <laughs> I threatened to call it Mommy Deepest, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to bring you back onto Shore Words when you have that done, Liz. And Oh yeah. And and I do think Sylvia perhaps your your nickname of her deepness has to do with how in depth you go into every issue and the um exploration you put into all these issues. It's not superficial at all. It is of great depth and it also illustrates your great concern for all depths within the ocean shallow, like along the coast, where I, I tend to spend most of my, my time and do most of my work, but then also into the depths. So uh, thank you. And by the way, I know everyone asks you where your favorite spot is to dive, but where's your favorite beach? <laughs> well, I guess it's the same answer, whether it's shallow or deep, it's any place 50 years ago. <laughs> mm. <laughs> It's a little, you know, snarky to say that, but it's true. The changes in just a few decades have been so dramatic. You could point your finger almost anywhere and it would be better than it is today. The key is thinking 50 years from now, it needs to be better than it is today. That's our goal. How can we use diving into the past and knowing what we should be aspiring to recover? And then, and then have a goal. Let's do this. This is really the best time ever to be a human being. 21st century humans have the opportunity to, armed with knowledge, go from where we are to get to a much better place and to maintain this blue speck in the universe in a way that is favorable to the rest of life on earth because it keeps us alive. <laughs> and knowing that is the key. If you, once you understand, it's not hard. That it, respect those trees. Don't cut them down. Look at what has already been cut down. Look at places that are already converted to human purposes rather than diving or, or, or insisting on taking more and more and more of these old growth systems that we don't know how to put back together again. We can go, we can restore to some extent, make them better than they otherwise would be, plant trees, native trees where they belong, and don't destroy anymore. I mean, really, we're down to 5% of old growth systems on the land. Let's hope we can keep those from fire. I mean, that's the other problem we're seeing. That's up to, that's our, we're the agents of change there too, you know? It really is one of those things that I think, you know, by you know, actually working to kind of, you know, depave some of the areas or make more permeable the areas so that water can return to the forest and right. uh, can help a lot. And, um, you know. And, and in the ocean, trawling is destroying at an incredible rate what, old growth systems remain and, and to even think about plowing the deep sea. These systems, those manganese nodules that are the target of deep sea mining right now are living rocks. They're not dead stones. They're living. They're 
formed by bacterial action, and they're still growing. They start out around a shark's tooth or a ear bone of a whale or something that is that is um, an organic starter. And then the bacteria grow and grow, and they're still growing. Some are the size of a walnut, some are the size of a potato. I used to have one that was the size of a football. I mean, so most of them we see now are in the order of at least a million years old potato-sized rocks. And well, talk about a fossil fuel, right? There, there you go. <laughs> just leave them there. Living, yeah, living systems, and they're loaded with just as any other old growth system with this great diversity of life. And there's the, the miners are spreading the big lie that there's nothing down there, and these are just dead rocks. They're not. They're not. They're alive, and they're home for this enormous diversity of life that captures and sequesters carbon. We don't have all the answers about how the deep sea connects with, let's say, a mangrove forest, or what's happening far inland or with the atmosphere above. But there's one thing for sure, it does connect. That we know that everything does connect with everything else and disrupting any part of this blue miracle that we call earth ripples through the whole system. So burning of forests in Australia, uh, cutting down trees in California, or mining the ocean, or trawling the ocean with these nets that drag the ocean floor, like bulldozing a forest to take out the songbirds and throw away everything else. Listen, it sounds like bad news, but I think the good news is, that, you know, think about all those smart people who lived long ago, who figured out what air is, who understood for the first time the nature of water. What is water? Somebody figure that out. <laughs> and what is air? And who are we? What, where did we come from, our history, as, as part of this network of life on Earth? But only right about now have we learned enough and is the knowledge widespread enough to be able to act because we know just as we knew in 2020, our very existence, our lives were threatened. And so we changed because we had to change or we would die. Now we know if we don't change relative to the fabric of life that maintains earth in a way favorable to us, we'll die. Our lives are on the line. Civilization will wink out because Earth can no longer support us. The systems that once kept us alive, we, with our eyes wide open, destroyed the very foundation of our existence. But huh, why am I so happy to be around in the 21st century? Because it's not too late. We can't save a lot of things that are lost, but we can protect what we've got. We still have 10% of the sharks and half the coral reefs. We can still breathe the air. And if we, if we really get serious about saving ourselves by saving nature, think of how happy we'll be in 10 years and 100 and 1,000 or 10,000 years from now because right now uh, my fellow humans <laughs> are waking up to the reality and what's not to be excited and happy and and really <laughs> optimistic about that and that's a, a wonderful note to end on i think both of you have been inspirations for people to have that hope to realize that we can be responsible for our environment and that our, our not only do our actions have consequences that goes both ways our positive actions can have positive consequences as well and so thank you sylvia thank you liz for 
for taking the time to talk. And, and I look forward to seeing your newest book and love always hearing from you and being able to engage with you. So, yeah, tune in to our Liz and Sylvia dive in events every other Thursday, one yeah. coming up soon. Yeah. You want to give, you want to give listeners a, a clue to how to find those? <laughs> you can, uh, our, we're sponsored by the Ocean Elders, and all of our past episodes are on the Ocean Elders YouTube channel. And you can uh, sign up there as well for um, updates. And of course, I post them on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and so forth. So you can find the links there. We'll be talking to Dane Budo this week, and followed by Dee Borsma. Dee Borsma, uh, yeah. Talking about penguins, and then. We'll be talking with the, the Literati founder, and finally at the end of the year, we're going to be talking about rewilding your backyards and creating backyard national parks. Yes. Wonderful. Blue ones and green ones, yes. So I also want to thank you for taking the time and, and thank you listeners for staying with us. I think it's been an amazingly educational, inspirational talk, and that it encourages you to look differently at your favorite piece of ocean or your favorite tree, your favorite part of nature, and see in big and small ways how you might be able to influence and make it change for the better. Till next time, enjoy the coast, the ocean, and your views of the shore. Goodbye.